Well, our text today will be Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. So you can go ahead and turn there. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, you'll find that on page 573. The Apostle Paul's letter addressed to the church at Colossae could just as well have been addressed to the church at Chaffee Crossing in Barling, Arkansas. Because it's a letter from a pastor's heart to encourage the saints to remain steadfast in the faith, holding fast to the gospel of Christ. As Jansen mentioned last week as he preached from verses 1 through 11, Paul wrote this letter during his Roman imprisonment. The arrangement of that imprisonment was such that he could receive visitors. It's kind of like he was on house arrest, we might say. And we learned from the opening salutation of the letter is that Timothy is there with Paul when this letter is written. The letter reveals how the church at Colossae began. In chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, it says, Just as you learned it, that the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So who is Epaphras? Well, he was a guy from Colossae, and apparently during the time of Paul's ministry a few years earlier in Ephesus, he traveled there some 100 miles from Colossae and heard the gospel and was converted. Well, then he then returned to Colossae and founded the church there. Paul himself had never been to Colossae. We know this from chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. As I was reading some commentaries about this letter, seeking to understand the context and the background in which it was written, it occurred to me how special this letter is. You see, Epaphras is one of the leaders of the church at Colossae. Perhaps he's the lead pastor among a plurality of elders. The scripture doesn't give us that detail. But we do know this church began because he was faithful to evangelize the people of his hometown. And God blessed that evangelism effort with conversions. But as this young church began to grow, inevitably, spiritual warfare came. We see in chapter 2, verse 8, where Paul pleads, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Then verses 16 through 23 of that chapter provide more insight into the specific heretical teachings that were being introduced into the church. And Epaphras, like any true pastor with the heart of a shepherd guarding God's sheep, recognizes the danger imposed on the church from these wolves, those that seek to confuse and destroy the faith of the believers, to destroy the unity of the church. So what does Epaphras do? He reaches out to the man that taught him the gospel. 
He turns to another pastor for counsel on how to shepherd God's church through the attacks of that eternal enemy of God, Satan, and his demonic forces. Now, Epaphras couldn't just send an email to Paul or get on a Zoom call with him. He apparently felt it was urgent enough that it required more than just writing a letter and waiting the long period of time for that letter to come back. He knew he needed face-to-face time with the apostle to receive the training and instruction and encouragement to, to keep striving, to keep building up the faith of the dear brothers and sisters for whom he labored. The journey to Rome from Colossae would be long and dangerous by either method he chose, land or sea. So this was a very significant thing that Epaphras chose to leave his church and travel to spend time with the Apostle Paul. I kind of envision it this way. You know, Timothy's already there. He's already enrolled in Paul's uh, pastoral internship program. Uh, Jackson and Grant, you just thought you had an intense time with Blake. How about being in the Apostle Paul's internship program? Well, one day... Epaphras shows up, and Paul and Timothy receive him, and he shares the reason for his coming and all the things that are happening in the church, the good, the good things, the faith, the love, and unity of the church, but also the attacks from these wolves from the outside. And he asks for Paul's counsel. How do I shepherd the church God has given to me? How do I respond to these plausible arguments, these philosophies rooted in the elemental spirits of the world? Well, I kind of envision that Paul had a big grin on his face. He said, come here, Timothy. It's time for some instruction. Get the whiteboard. Get the whiteboard, Blake. We know when serious instruction comes, the whiteboard comes out. They get together, and Paul starts asking questions. First, Epaphras, tell us how you're doing. Tell us how the saints are doing. And then tell us what these attacks are, what specifically is being said. And out of that comes this spirit-inspired letter to instruct God's church to remain steadfast in the faith. It's written in response to the issues in the church at Colossae, but it's also applicable in its message to the churches in nearby Laodicea and and Hierapolis. Its message is timeless, and it's certainly applicable to us. And Paul must have encouraged Epaphras to stay with him for a while, because as we see at the last chapter of the letter, Epaphras sends his greetings back to the church. So he stayed there with Paul. Paul sent this letter with Tychicus and Onesimus who were charged with, by him to deliver the letter to the church at Colossae and also to Laodicea. The reason I'm trying to paint this picture is to help us see what a treasure we have in the Word of God. See, this letter is personal. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. For what? that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This letter is pastoral. Paul prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Epaphras also struggled for them in his prayers 
that they may stand mature and fully assured of all the will of God. From the beginning of the letter and all throughout, Paul is holding up high the gospel and urging them to look to the word of Christ and nothing else. In fact, the whole letter's point could be summed up in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. As we learned last week in the sermon text from chapter 3, the reality for the Christian is that our lives are joined with Christ. The old nature has died with Christ in his death, and the new nature has come, for our life is hidden now with Christ in God. So our text today builds upon that glorious reality. So read with me starting in verse 12 of chapter 3. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. Well, I have three main points for us to consider as we walk through this wonderful passage of Scripture. Point number one. The word of Christ produces new character. The word of Christ produces new character. That's verses 12 through 14. Point number two, the word of Christ guides the gathered church. 
The word of Christ guides the gathered church. It's verses 15 through 17. And point number three, the word of Christ is instruction for all aspects of Christian living. The word of Christ is instruction for all aspects of Christian living. That's verses 18 through 4-1. Well, you can see in each of those points a repeated phrase, the word of Christ. That comes from verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I want you to have this in your mind from the beginning, what that phrase, word of Christ, means. It's the word of God. It's scripture. It could have been stated, the word about Christ. We sang in the song, it traced the Christ from the beginning all the way through. We sang that earlier. See, the whole canon of Scripture is God revealing His redemptive plan for all those He has chosen. And that plan accomplished through the person and completed work of Jesus Christ our Lord through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave. From Genesis to Revelation, it is about Christ. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word of Christ is synonymous with God's Word, Holy Scripture. Well, with that explanation, let's look at point number one. The Word of Christ produces new character. Verse 12 starts, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, put on has the meaning as in putting on clothes. And it, it's the same imagery that was painted in verses 9 and 10 that we looked at last week. That putting off the old self with its sinful desires and putting on the new self resulting in righteous desire. But now in verses 12 through 14, the, the description of these new spiritual clothes, if you will, gets more detailed by listing specific character qualities specific characteristics of a Christian. But before Paul gets into that listing, he adds this power-packed phrase, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. We can't pass over that. We need to consider the weight of these words, chosen, holy, beloved. As God's chosen ones, this new nature was given to you. Not something that you picked out. Not something like you would purchase an article of clothing. No, God chose you. And as expressed in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This marvelous truth that God chose us is even more profound when we learn that His choosing was even before God spoke the world into being. Ephesians 1, chapter, or verses 4 and 5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So not only were we not in existence, but the universe was not in existence when God, according to the counsel of his own perfect will, chose those for whom 
that price of a re redemption would be paid by the blood of Christ on the cross. That's astounding. That means that the choosing is not based on any merit of ours, any works that would commend us to God. He chose. And He chose us in order to make us holy in Christ. Our only claim before a holy God is a holiness that is given to us by God. In essence, we are clothed in the holiness of Christ to make us acceptable. Not only does God make us holy in Christ, but He lavishes His love on us. The word beloved there literally means having been loved. See, in Christ you've been loved to the utmost. John 13, 1 says, Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. It means to perfection. That perfect love was then demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross. So then you are chosen by God. You're made holy by God. You're beloved by God. So then, Paul writes, because of that, put on these characteristics. Read, read with me the rest of verse 12 through 14. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony compassion kindness humility meekness patience forgiveness love these are the characteristics befitting a citizen of heaven. And since our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, these characteristics should describe us, Christians, now, right here on earth. That's the argument Paul's making in this chapter. Can you think of anyone in your life that exhibits all these qualities? We might can think of some people that show some of these characteristics, maybe not all of them, and certainly in varying measures. But let's get a little more personal with the question. Are these characteristics evident in your life? Let's look at this list more closely and we'll come back to that question. Compassionate hearts. The Greek word has the meaning of pity in relieving sorrow and want. Having pity in relieving sorrow and want. Jesus demonstrated compassion for the large crowds that were gathered to him when he taught. In Mark 6.34 it says, When he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You have people in your life that are demanding, needy. It may even irritate you a bit because they're always taking and never giving. But do you ever consider the spiritual condition of those folks in your life? Do you consider that their behavior is because they're enslaved to sin and they can only do what their sinful desires dictate? Compassion looks beyond the outward behavior and it looks at the needs of the heart. 
They need the word of Christ, the good news of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes meeting a temporal need is showing a compassionate heart. Certainly, we as Christians should lead in that kind of activity. But the greater need is for the change of heart that comes from hearing the word of God and responding to it in faith. The compassionate heart meets the need of both. Just the way Christ did when he fed the 5,000. He met their temporal need for food. But what did he do? More importantly, he taught them their spiritual need for him, Christ. Kindness. Jesus showed kindness to the woman that sought to touch the hem of his garment. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus asked, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She came in fear and trembling of what would happen. But Jesus didn't rebuke her. He didn't embarrass her. He showed kindness. He healed her. Humility. The greatest example of humility is when Christ washed the feet of the disciples. John 13 describes the scene. It says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. And Paul exhorted the Philippian church to have the same mind as Christ, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? In Christ Jesus, this same mindset of humility is yours. Why? Because your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Meekness. A meek person does not exhibit anger or bitterness when treated unfairly. We have no better example than that of Christ Jesus and how he endured suffering in his betrayal and crucifixion. And Peter summed it up this way in his letter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then there's patience. When the disciples continued to doubt, Jesus patiently taught. In John 14, Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? And then he began to teach them. Similarly, in John 20, 
Jesus showed patient with Thomas's unbelief that he had risen from the grave. God shows much patience with each of us in our slowness to understand and in our reluctance to believe. Forgiveness. Jesus taught in the parable of the unforgiving servant recorded in Matthew 18 how his followers were to grant for forgiveness just as they have been forgiven. Jesus then demonstrated this incredible forgiveness when he hung up on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Verse 13 in our text says, So you also must forgive. Because our lives are now hidden in Christ, and through Christ we've been forgiven of all of our sins, Likewise, we must forgive the sins of others against us. Love. The love spoken here is a sacrificial love. It's the kind of love we read earlier from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A love that is completely self-sacrificing for the sake of others. Jesus said in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he did just that upon the cross. Paul said in verse 14, this kind of love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love makes all these characteristics work together. See, we can show compassion, we can show kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, but if we don't really love, then we're what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. We're a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If the motivation of the heart is not from sacrificial love, the love of Christ, we're nothing and we gain nothing. So I ask you again, does anyone come to mind that exhibits all these characteristics? Well, if you noticed, as we work through that list, Every example of the character qualities was Christ. It's Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example. He is the embodiment. You may have thought of people in your life as we went through the list that have these characteristics, but no one embodies them all and with perfection but Christ. We could sum up the list by saying these are Christ-like characteristics. And what the word of Christ is teaching us is that we should put on the character of Christ because we are in Christ by faith in the gospel that has come to us in the word of Christ. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, which we have out in the lobby, author Dane Ortland takes an excerpt from a sermon by Jonathan Edwards in which he said this of Christ. Everything that is lovely in God is in Christ. And everything that is or can be lovely in any man is in him. For he is man as well as God. And he is the holiest, meekest, most humble, and every way the most excellent man that ever was. Well, I said this point is the word of Christ produces new character. And I told you that the word of Christ is God's word. So how does God's word produce this new character in us? It's by the gospel, 
It's the good news that there is a solution to the predicament that your sin has placed you in before a holy and righteous judge. Brothers and sisters, how these Christ-like characteristics are manifest in your daily life with greater consistency is by daily reading the Word of God and being amazed, astonished, astounded by the glory of the gospel that Christ would give his life for the likes of us, wretched, rebellious sinners that we are. And by faith in him that God gives to us as a free gift, we're no longer under his justified wrath. That's what Paul was praying for these believers when he says, I do not, I've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul's saying, though I've never met you, this is how I'm praying for you, and I'm asking God to give you wisdom and understanding of who God is and who you are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we increase in the knowledge of God? By reading and studying and meditating daily on the Word of Christ. We must consciously, intentionally remind ourselves of the gospel. That we're chosen, we're made holy, we're beloved in Christ. We have this treasure in the written Word of God readily available to us. So let's be a people marked by consistent daily intake of the Word of Christ. Submit yourselves every day to the glories of the gospel of Christ. Seek to understand in greater measure the gospel of Christ, and it will produce in you the character of Christ. Well, the word of Christ then guides how we as a church should function as we gather as God's chosen people. Point number two says the word of Christ guides the gathered church. Read with me in verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This peace in verse 15 is not some subjective peace of mind, like an emotional state of mind. But rather, this is the objective peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. The word of Christ declares that before salvation, we're actually enemies of God. James 4.4 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But through faith, which is a gift from God, and comes by hearing the word of God, we're justified before God and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.20 says that Christ has purchased this peace for us by the blood of his cross. This peace then is to rule the body the gathered church 
this verb rule has the meaning of to act as an umpire. An umpire only steps in when the rules are not being followed. As we are joined in one body by the blood-bought peace of Christ, we are then to act in good conscience toward God and the members of the body. Christ said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're to guard the body against the grumbling of fault-finding and complaining. An attitude of thankfulness to God is the correct umpire's call to bring correction to a complaining spirit. The charge to be thankful is not just a nice add-on phrase. Christians should be marked by thankfulness to God. As we consider the depths of the gospel of Christ, gratitude, thanksgiving, should be our continual response to God. And this attitude of thankfulness then should manifest in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Because our unity with one another is based on that one common point. We all have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Ephesians 4.3 that Christians should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, how can we be diligent to maintain that unity of the Spirit and be thankful? Verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Well, the Greek word for dwell means to be at home in. It's to be that desired, familiar, comfortable place that we want to stay in. We should know and love and want to be in the Word of Christ, that we just live in it. And the word richly could be translated abundantly. So restating the verse with those words, it says the word of Christ is to be at home in us abundantly. That's going to be more than just a couple of minutes with a daily Bible reading app. If you're not reading at all, that's okay to start there. It's going to be more than just a one-page quick devotional. It's going to be more like Psalm 1. The one that meditates on the word of Christ. Day and night. It's continually on your mind. It's guiding your thoughts. It's guiding the desires of your heart. It keeps you from leaning on your own understanding. And it's out of our heart that we speak. Pastor Blake's been faithful to encourage us to linger after our worship gatherings so that we get to know each other more than just casual acquaintances and one of the ways is to have some meaningful conversations with each other just asking what did you learn today how did the word of God impact you today from that sermon or asking how, how your week's been how the intake of your word your personal study how's it impacting your life sharing that with one another it's hearing how the Word of Christ is impacting our lives. That teaches one another. How we can share burdens with one another and pray for one another. But all of it in light of God's truth. 
And I'm so encouraged to see this body of believers doing that in growing measure week after week. Well, to add some weight to the value of this deeper level of fellowship, I want to share a powerful example of how letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and speaking it to one another, not just after their service on Sunday, but any day and any time, how that can be used of God, even to draw unbelievers to Him. I want to share with you an excerpt from the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield. You may be familiar with her name. She was a professor at Syracuse University. She's written several books now and speaks well on the Word of God. She spoke this testimony at a Ligonier Ministries conference in 2015. She said, After years and years of this, something happened. The Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. And then one Sunday morning, two years after I first met Ken, her pastor, and Floyd, Ken's wife, and two years after I started reading the, the Bible for my research, I left the bed I shared with my lesbian partner and an hour later, I showed up in a pew at Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. I kept going back to, hear, to church to hear more sermons. I had made friendships with people in the church by this time. And I had really appreciated the way that they talked about the sermons throughout the week. How the Word of God dwelt in them. And how they referenced it in the details of their days. Did you catch that last part? They referenced it, the word of Christ, in the details of their days. Friends, that's when the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. When we're speaking of God's word in every detail of our lives. When we're submitting to its authority when we're guided by its truth to answer the complexities of this life, when we're renewing our minds daily in this glorious gospel, this impacts lives, not only our own, but it impacts lives with the transformational power of the gospel. That's what it means in this verse, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Admonish means to warn we should love each other enough to warn each other when we're self-deceived by sin. We teach each other when we speak to one another of what we're learning from the Word of Christ. Both in our personal studies through the week and through the reading, singing, and preaching of God's Word here on Sunday mornings. When the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, it spills out in song. We sing gospel-rich songs here at CCBC because it's an expression of the Word of Christ dwelling in us. It's a powerful presentation of the truth of God's Word. In his book, Corporate Worship, Matt Merker expounds on the Apostle Paul's instruction to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. He writes, We should sing a variety of songs all of which summarize and celebrate the word of Christ. That is, the message of the gospel. This means that singing is a part of the ministry of God's word. 
When a congregation verbalizes truth in song, the Holy Spirit unleashes the double-edged sword of Scripture in our midst. We teach one another. As we do, we come both to treasure and to understand God more deeply. This has an effect on believers and non-believers in our gatherings each week. And what do I mean by that? Have you ever come to church and your spirit's really discouraged? You might describe your mental state as discouraged or even depressed. You're here physically, but emotionally and spiritually, you're somewhere else. You don't feel like singing. It's hard to concentrate on the Word of God. But as you listen to the singing, the voices of the congregation singing around you, you hear the words. The truth of those words resonates in your heart. For the believer, it's a precious reminder of the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God for you. Remember that you're chosen, made holy and beloved in Christ. It builds up your faith. It renews your mind in the truth that perhaps had become clouded by doubt and unbelief. And for the unbeliever, singing the word of Christ is another form of hearing the gospel message. It just may be the means by which the Spirit of God makes alive the heart of an unbeliever to hear the truth of the gospel and respond in repentance for sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 17 draws these commands together by stating, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God the Father through Him. It means that whether individually or corporately as the gathered church, whatever spoken and whatever actions are taken should be consistent with the Word of Christ and the manifest character of Christ. And the motivation for the word or deed should be drawn from a heart full of thankfulness to God for His immeasurable grace and His mercy and the Spirit-enabled power to say or do anything that is worthy of the name of Christ. Three times now in just these five verses, Paul has urged us to be thankful to God. How are you doing in, in expressing thankfulness to God? Do you tend more toward complaining, a little grumbling? Do you consider what you have in life, your material blessings, the relationships in your life, more a result of your own efforts rather than recognizing that every good thing comes from God? It would be an appropriate response to these scriptures to assess where your heart is in relation to thankfulness to God. As the hymn says, count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. So we've learned that the word of Christ produces new character. The character that was perfectly exemplified in Christ. We see that the word of Christ gives guidance to the gathered church as it dwells in us richly. And our last point is that the word of Christ guides all aspects of Christian living. 
This is verses 18 through 4-1. Now verses 18 to 21 provide some biblical instruction for the Christian family, for marriage and family life. And then verses 22 through 25, in that first verse of chapter 4, we find biblical instruction for work. Well, the Word of Christ presents order and design for the Christian family. The redemptive work of Christ is to restore order and peace to all things, and that's in response to the chaos and the destruction that sin wrought on creation, on mankind, and consequently, on the family. Well, just as we individually need the redemptive work of Christ, so too our families and marriages need the redemptive work of Christ. The institution of marriage has not escaped the ravages of the fall. Like everything else that is human, it needs redemption. Unredeemed, it will produce only particular temptations, corruptions, and miseries, C.S. Lewis observed. We can entertain in our minds a sentimental idea that marriage and family is a safe haven from the chaos where your sinfulness will do no harm and you'll be unharmed by the sinfulness of others. Well, Paul said in chapter 2, I don't want you to be deluded by plausible arguments, things that may sound good, that may have some biblical language to it, but in essence are a deception based on the elemental spirits of this world that entice us to self-deception. In his commentary on Colossians, John Woodhouse adds these insights about this unrealistic expectation of marriage and family. Listen to what he says. These days we have our own particular culturally conditioned view about family life that freedom from restraint is the path to fulfillment and happiness. If we cannot be free from restraint in our own home, if we cannot be relaxed and unguarded and undisciplined in our own family, then where can we be? Well, the answer from the word of Christ is nowhere. Nowhere this side of heaven is it safe for us to simply be ourselves. At least not until ourselves are fully redeemed. And that, dear friends, is not going to occur until we're in the presence of our Redeemer we're in this body of flesh well until then what do we do how then are we to live in marriage and family in a manner that is worthy of Christ and is consistent with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ well let's look to the instruction of the word of Christ verse 18 wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord now, dear sisters, before you develop some negative notions about that word submit, let's look more deeply at God's design for the roles of husband and wife in marriage. To understand those roles, we go back to the beginning. In Genesis, the book of beginnings, we find that all that God had made was good. You see that refrain, and it was good, and it was good, repeated in regard to all that God created up until Genesis 2.18, in which it says, 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is vitally important to understand why God created woman. It's not that Eve was merely created and given as Adam's wife to bear children and to help him in the mundane tasks of life. Listen to this definition of the Hebrew word translated as helper in in verse 18. This Hebrew word is used consistently in reference to reinforcements who are sent in to strengthen an ally during battle. Reinforcements who are sent in to strengthen an ally during battle. You see what this means? Adam was given a task by God and he needed help. He needed strength to fulfill that task. What was Adam's God-given task? Well, Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And here again, the Hebrew words provide some strong insight. The word translated as work in this verse is translated as serve throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the root of the word carries with it the weight of religious service and worship. Not just work as in working the garden or tilling the ground. That means that work as appointed by God is sacred. Work as appointed by God is sacred. And God has appointed the husband's role in marriage as one of headship. The husband is to lead his wife in sacred worship of God. And he needs the help of his wife to strengthen him in that sacred work as she submits to his authority and leadership. Submission then is not to be viewed as the woman being inferior to the man, but rather as equal in human dignity, as both male and female are created in the image of God. And God has established the order of authority. So submission does not mean that you become a doormat. It does not mean that you have no opinions of your own. It does not mean that you can't differ from your husband or think critically for yourself. It does not mean that you can be treated by him as a piece of property. It does not mean that you are to serve his every selfish desire. Submission, as defined by the word of Christ then, is to willingly obey the God-designed order of authority. 1 Corinthians 11.3 declares this order. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. As Christ willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father, so the husband is to submit to Christ and the wife to submit to the husband. So we can conclude from these scriptures that willing submission of a wife to her husband is obedience to God. Paul said it is fitting in the Lord. It's in keeping with the word of Christ. It's doing all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So wives, guard your heart against the temptation to base your submission to your husband on his merit based on his actions earning your willing submission. Rather, set your mind on obedience to the word of Christ 
whose redemptive work brings order and blessing to our marriages. Well, it's already been shown in the scripture that the husband has the God-given role of leadership in marriage. How then is he to fulfill that role? Verse 19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The action word in that verse is love. We can understand what, better what kind of love this is in Paul's more expansive instruction for husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the kind of love husbands are called to give is a sacrificial love. Christ willingly gave his life for his bride, the church. So too a husband is commanded by the word of Christ to do the same. In his book, Captivated by Christ, author Richard Chin very colorfully describes this sacrificial love and warns young men considering marriage. Listen to what he says. You're to sacrifice everything for her good. If that means literally dying for her, so be it. If you need to sacrifice your life for her good, do it. You're just doing your job. Death is what it's all about. Don't get married if you're not ready to lay down your life for your bride. The shape of marriage for husbands is the shape of the cross. Those are pretty strong words. But husbands are called to love as Christ loved. And this means to lay down your life for her. What does it look like to love your life this way, men? Four quick points for you. Seek to understand your wife. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Intentionally seek to know the needs of your wife. As the circumstances of our lives are ever changing, so are the needs of your wife. Don't be aloof. Pay attention. Ask questions. <laughs> be intentional to look ahead for her. Be considerate of her needs before your own. Secondly, cherish your wife. Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Does your wife feel loved by you? It's more than just saying it. It's in serving her so that she knows that she is treasured by you. Thirdly, nourish your wife. That same verse says, Nourish and cherish her. Nourish means to promote health and strength. Husbands should be intentional to strengthen their wives emotionally and spiritually. Take the lead in knowing the word of Christ. Make it dwell in you richly. Share that knowledge and understanding with her for the purpose of her own spiritual growth. Plan to read scripture together. If that's difficult to do consistently, then plan how you can create space for her to read and study on her own. 
and come together and discuss it. Talk about what you're learning. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Lastly, be aware of the temptation for bitterness. Don't be harsh and controlling. Guard your heart against the temptation of resentment and bitterness. That's what Paul means by do not be harsh with them. Our inherent selfishness will entice us to bitterness. Why? Because we don't like sacrifice. We don't like giving up. That's what we're called to do, though. So you're going to be tempted to get a little bitter, to think, hmm, I'm always having to give, I'm always having to give. Guard your heart against that. You must be on guard against such selfish thoughts. And pray for the strength of God's Spirit within you to deliver you from that. God doesn't give you a command that He doesn't give you the strength to fulfill. So this is not some lofty thing that's unattainable. God says to do it. He provides the strength by His Spirit to do it. Well, Christ's redemptive order for marriage and family includes instruction for children. Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents... In everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, kids, I know it may be a little tough to hear this one, but God's Word says to obey your parents in everything. That means there's no exceptions or excuses. And I want you to hear from this verse is that when you obey your parents, you're doing what pleases the Lord. So remember when you're tempted to say no, when you're wanting to go against what your parents are asking, remember that the Lord Jesus is most pleased when you choose to obey your parents. Obedience is always a way to show that you love your parents. Jesus said in John 15:10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So obeying God's commands shows that you love both the Lord Jesus and your parents. Well, then verse 21 contains a warning to fathers that if it's not heeded, it's going to have a negative impact on family life. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It's a warning for fathers to be aware of and guard against the temptation to abuse your authority as the leader of the home. Rooted in pride... Rooted in pride, a father can be demanding of his children to the point that a child can lose heart. They can be crushed in spirit, thinking that they'll never measure up to what dad demands. Fathers, your words and your actions carry much weight. So be careful not to crush the heart of your children by them. Instead, we must shepherd the hearts of our children. They're sinners just like us. And if our Heavenly Father is patient and merciful with our own continual disobedience, so we should demonstrate the same with our children. Well, fathers, how can we navigate these rocky waters of parenting so that your children are learning obedience that pleases the Lord, but at the same time you don't exasperate them to the point that they lose heart 
and they give themselves over to continual disobedience. Well, a few points here quickly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Hmm, a recurring theme. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and warning your own heart. Check your heart against the commands of God because pride is deceptive. Make certain that what you are asking of your children is guided by God's word and not by something that is distorted from God's word by your own pride. Instruct your children from the word of God. Teach them about God-ordained authority and what the instruction you are giving them is because God has commanded it. So instruct your children from the Word of God. Thirdly, use the times of correction and discipline as teaching moments from the Word of God. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7 says, Teach the Word of God as you're walking through all phases of life. So seize those moments, redeem those moments in the Spirit of God, in self-control. Teach while you're correcting. Lastly, do not discipline in anger. If you feel that coming on and you're losing that self-control, stop and pray and come under the strength and direction of the Holy Spirit. And if you fail, like I have often... <laughs> Go back later and ask for forgiveness. Set the example. Disciplining in anger is destructive and it has very long-lasting negative consequences on our children. Anger is almost always the byproduct of expecting one thing from our children and getting another. Our emotions come not so much from the circumstances but from our interpretation of those circumstances. Really what this is, is exposing idolatrous thinking in our hearts. What I mean. It's saying that I think I deserve circumstances other than what sovereign God has delivered in this moment. So by stopping and thinking to pray, it's an opportunity to grow in your own sanctification and in self-control by the Holy Spirit. Well, we see that the Word of Christ gives clear instruction for order in Christian marriages and families that manifests Christ in his redemptive work. And the last aspect of Christian living that our text addresses is that of work, our life of work. Verses 22 through the end of the chapter says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So how does God's re redemptive work affect the everyday work that we do. Whether that's the work of maintaining our household or in the workplace as an employee or an employer. Well, in the discussion on God-given roles of the husband and wife in marriage, we looked at Genesis 2.15 in which God placed Adam in the garden to work it 
and keep it. And we learn that the Hebrew word for work has the meaning of religious service and worship. So God's assignment of Adam to work the garden was sacred work. And it's also important to understand that this assignment was given before the fall. Before sin entered the hearts of Adam and Eve. So work, as God has designed it, is fundamental It's a fundamental aspect of being human. God expects us to work. You know, many of us may have the perception in our minds that ministry work, that is, work associated with the local church or in the mission field, is sacred. And all other work is secular. But this Genesis text shows us that that's not a biblical idea. Genesis 2.15 is showing us that all work is sacred because God has ordained that we will work. And so when we look at what Paul's saying to the Colossian church, it makes complete sense that he would say in verse 23, whatever you do, whatever work you're doing, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. See, our motivation for work and our motivation for excellent work is that all of our work is sacred. We are working for the Lord. If you're working outside the home in the workplace, do your work with excellence, out of motivation to please God. Christians should stand out. They should stand apart from non-Christians in the workplace, in their attitude in which they approach work, and in the output of their work. The excellence of their work. Guard your heart. Check your heart. Don't be solely motivated to do excellent work, to please a manager, to please someone so that you're recognized and financially rewarded. That kind of motivation is tainted with pride and selfishness and even covetousness. But the pure motive for the Christian is to work for the Lord in obedience to Him. And then that excellent work is going to be rewarded in the appropriate way. If you're a manager or employer, guard your own heart against pride and greed. Be fair and just with those that work for you. Recognize excellent work. Reward it appropriately. Do this in motivation to please the Lord. Just as you desire fair and just treatment of the Lord, do the same to your employees. Well, I said in the opening that this letter addressed to the church at Colossae could very well have been addressed to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. And it is addressed to us because it's the Word of Christ. It's the timeless, eternal Word of God. And it has instruction for us today. It has instructed us in knowing that the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ, when that is at home in our hearts, produces in us a Christ-like character that should be evident in us individually. And it's instructed us in knowing the word of Christ then guides how we as the gathered church have peace with God and with each other. And that the spoken and sung word of Christ teaches us and admonishes us in all wisdom. 
And knowing the word of Christ guides every aspect of life outside of this gathering space. Our marriage, our family, and our work. So brothers and sisters, go from this place today with this in your mind. Intent to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Encouraging one another in the faith. Singing to God psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Doing everything in a manner that is consistent with the Lord Jesus Christ. And be thankful to God. He has chosen you. He has made you holy. You are loved fully in Christ. He has set your st- his steadfast love upon you and nothing will ever separate you from that. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks today for the grace and mercy and love that you have shown us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We now have peace with you and we have peace with each other. Father, make us diligent to guard that peace by causing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Oh, Father, give us a hunger, a craving for your word so that we eat it. We daily take it in and we meditate on it day and night so that it guides our heart and out of our heart speaks your truth in our marriages, husbands and wives, Husbands loving their, Christ, their wives as Christ loved the church, giving themselves for her, nurturing her, cherishing her. Wives submitting in obedience to God by submitting to the leadership of their husbands. Children obeying their parents. Fathers being careful and how they guide their hearts of their children, shepherding them to your love. Oh, Father, may that mark us as your people. May the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we may do all things, everything we do, word or deed, being consistent with the character and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.